If you have your Bibles, open it up to John's Gospel, chapter 2. Very, very familiar story, um, very wonderful story that you could tell yourself. It's a very short little narrative about a wedding and about a problem and about Jesus. All of them kind of intersect in one little short 12-verse passage of chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Before we read it, I want to kind of set it up and give you some perspective to kind of use as a lens to see this passage through. Chapter 2 begins kind of a new section of John's gospel, even though chapter 1 was just kind of those really important things about Jesus being the word and the introduction of the disciples and what God was doing to draw men to himself. Here, beginning in chapter 2, all the way to chapter 11 is the events of Jesus. It's what people almost around the world would know of Christ, his miraculous work his wonderful uh, actions. In fact, some writers have called it the book of signs, this short section of John, that these are the places where God shows up and, and demonstrates his power. In other words, we see the miracles, we see the events that reveal who Jesus is as king, and they tell the story of redemption. Every one of these particular experiences, right? So beyond the encounter of Jesus, and how winsome he is, just as a person. You, you see him, you see the way he talks and how he cares and his heart of compassion. And just as a person, you're just like magnetized to that. Well, it's also filled with symbolism. Every one of these accounts and the symbolism um, as God reveals his son to the world and salvation for sinners. So it's all in these stories. Beyond the reality, the truth of what's happening to real people in a real moment in time, God is painting a picture in the background of what he's going to do and what he has done for mankind and their sin. Okay. So in order for us to get our head around this particular wedding, it's important for us to kind of understand Hebrew weddings uh, this might be more information than you want, but you'll just contrast and compare because if you've been married and more than likely you've been to at least a wedding, the difference between a Western wedding and an Easter wedding couldn't be more radical. Um, now, I'm only speaking for myself, but good weddings last really short, okay? Like they're really short. I keep emphasizing if you're asking me to do a wedding, they need to be really short, okay? Um, Western weddings are a couple hours, in an afternoon, an evening, and then you're out of Dodge, right? So that's the plan. Eastern weddings, though, are days, up to a week, they celebrate these weddings. Here in, uh, in the Western culture, the bride is the focal point, right? The whole thing is about the bride, the dress the bride wears when, when she enters the chapel or the place where you're doing the wedding. Everyone stands, the organ plays, and everyone turns and recognizes. It's the exact opposite in an Eastern wedding. It's the bridegroom who gets the focal point in the Eastern wedding. And here the bride's family pays for everything. And I'm glad I had four sons. Amen. <laughs> um, but, but in the Eastern wedding, it was the, the groom who paid for everything. So it was on him. The wedding celebration was considered, now this is really important to understand the context and what's going on in this story. This wedding celebration in this time was considered to be the most important, most special event in a person's entire life. And that's no exaggeration. See, especially for the poor, which was basically the majority of the people in this day and age, um, for those few days, those several days, they were treated as royalty. Never going to happen again. Very, very special moment for them. After the ceremony, they were taken to their homes in a parade so that everyone in the town, everyone could see them, recognize them. They'd get that kind of attention that they would never get in another time. Instead of a honeymoon, which happens in the West, they'd actually have an open house for a week. 
and invite everyone to come to them. In fact, it was such a kind of a position of an experience of royalty. They'd actually wear crowns and their word was law. They would just say things and people would serve them and that's kind of how it was. So there was a really important emphasis of this, of this couple for this short season, this huge celebration, a big deal. And if you consider now that most people were terribly poor in difficult circumstances, their, their wedding really was the greatest day of their entire life. Everything was hinging upon that day. Never again would there be this kind of celebration for them. Never again would there be this level of joy. Everything was hinging on this moment. Never again would they be treated like this, like royalty. And it cannot be exaggerated to say that this was the greatest day above all other days was your wedding day. So you, are you getting the pressure here? What's, what's happening in the scene in this, in this particular wedding? And just like the wedding has more emphasis or more kind of, uh, I guess, importance or significance in, in the East, so, so does the issue of wine at a wedding. Um, see, wine wasn't just a drink. It wasn't just something to have available at a wedding. It was, uh, it was a symbol of extreme joy and celebration. It was making a point with a drink about this moment. It was so important that you could be sued if you didn't provide it. Very important for the wedding. It was the symbol of hospitality, and it was a horrible, horrible embarrassment and shame if the groom or the family of the groom didn't deliver. Are you getting the pressure of the story? Now, we, we got to read it, but nevertheless, that's the backdrop. That's the potential tension in, in a wedding. The expectations for the bride and the groom, the responsibilities of the groom, and the importance of wine at a wedding. So here's where this, these particulars line up with this story. Let's read it together. Chapter 2. 1 through 12. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now, there were six stone jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn, drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you, you have kept the good wine until now. This is the first of his signs. Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Let me just talk through the story and, and maybe, maybe kind of put some pieces in the actual narrative, and then let's point to the signs as we finish so far, we've seen Jesus call five men to follow him. Five disciples are at this wedding. We know, that, we know already that Andrew and John and, and Peter and Philip and Nathaniel are part of that inner group with Jesus, and they've been invited through Jesus to come to this wedding. And the text tells us that Jesus' mother was there. Some writers speculate that maybe the reason why she's so prominent in this story is that it was one of Jesus' brothers or possibly a sister that was getting married. Don't know. It's not even the point of it. But she's seriously involved in this, not only in the invitations, but also in the problem solving, which sounds like a, a mother, right? So 
So she's there, and the, the tension, the problem in this story, the crisis is that wine has run out, which is, like I said, really hard for us to get our minds around if we don't understand the culture. I, I can't... Uh, when I got married, I'm not kidding, we, we did the whole wedding for 500 bucks. We had 25 people at our wedding. We had a poppy seed cake made at Albertsons for the reception. And then we went to Pizza Hut. Okay? <laughs> so I wasn't going to struggle from embarrassment if something went poorly. I have, I have about uh, 20 pictures taken at the wedding with my brother-in-law with a 110 Instamatic cardboard camera. We did it on the cheap. Okay, so you have to just think about your wedding, not my wedding. But just imagine you plan this whole day. You've got hundreds of your best friends and all your closest relatives coming to the wedding, and the caterer decides to blow it and not show up. And you're ready, man. The people are hungry. You planned a wedding at the worst possible time, dinner time, and there's no food. Whatever pressure that would feel, now just increase it tenfold. Put the weight of the most important day anybody's ever going to have on that moment, and it doesn't show up. Now add to that the status and the reputation of the groom and his family has been compromised. Shame. That's, the, that's what's at stake here. Now the text tells us they'd already sort of done the best they could do. They've already given out the best of the wine. It's gone out. They've already probably done what everyone else does is after you've given the good wine, you water down what's left and you give them the watered down wine because people who are a little bit loose don't notice the difference. And they're out. They got nothing. Their best efforts or problem solving couldn't fix the problem. Let that stick in your mind. No wine is a serious, serious problem. Jesus' mother tells Jesus, hey, we've run out. And I want you to notice the way she says it. It's sort of just really quick, but you can almost read the expectation in her voice. She goes to her son and says, We've run out. Like, I assume you're going to take care of this. I need you to take care of this. All the expectations are there. Possibly, and more than likely, I mean, beyond the fact that Mary knew who her son was, she had heard about him in the desert with John the Baptist when he was being baptized and the heavens opened up and the Holy Spirit descended on a dove and the voice of heaven said, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. She sees the disciples following him. She knows it's time in her mind. Game on. You're coming out, Jesus. So do it. Show everyone who you are. That was her statement. Reveal yourself. Now, that's exactly how Jesus heard it, by the way. Look at verse 4. Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. It sounds disrespectful, but it's not what's going on here. You notice, you probably remember, even when Jesus is hanging on the cross and she says to her, his mother, woman, behold your son, as he transfers her to the care of another man as he's giving up his life. That was a respectful term, not a disrespectful term. But when Jesus says, what does this have to do with me? It was kind of the Hebrew way of saying, you don't get it. Not like I'm not going to respond, because clearly he did. He answered the request. He provided wine for a wedding. So it wasn't like, no, it was, you don't understand what you're asking. What Jesus is saying to his mother is, if I do this, it will not do what you think it will do and what you expect it to do. If I take care of this wine thing, you think it'll expose me as the son of God. 
and they'll never see it. It won't happen that way. Jesus' mother wanted him to be seen for who he was, and Jesus knows that Israel won't see him and can't see him. There's a blindness to who he is. In fact, if miracles were all that were needed for Israel to get it, then how do you explain these stubborn dead hearts? Because Jesus did a lot of miracles, and they killed him. So clearly miracles weren't the solution to them seeing him. Something else was bigger. So when Jesus says, my hour has not yet come, he's talking about revealing his glory, like his intentions. And, and it has nothing to do with what people hoped in. I don't even think his mother had the kind of clear understanding of what he was there for. In the Jewish mind, the Messiah was to be a king, a ruler king. And if you're just being really pragmatic, what you want a ruler king to do is fix the problems in your world. Like, I'll bet you, we don't have these terms, but I'll bet you if someone could vote tomorrow for a ruler king to fix the mess in our world, we'd pick somebody who could kind of make the right kind of laws and say no to the right kinds of things and be the right kind of moral presence. And he could just sit, right? He could just sit in Washington, D.C. and be the right kind of man. Well, whatever that is, is kind of the expectation that you had for the Messiah. Like, he would deal with Rome, We'd be no longer oppressed. We'd be somebody again. We'd prosper. All the expectations, like human expectations, were wrapped up in, in all that people thought of the Messiah. But Jesus knew different. He came for a different reason. The hour that Jesus was referring to that was not yet come was when he'd give his life a ransom for sinners, which is the only reason he came. You know that moment when the Son of Man, the creator of everything, the one who holds everything together by the power of his word would be lifted up to suffer death by the hands of creation for the very ones who kill him? That's his glory on display. The mystery, the wonder, the amazement of God having a plan that so, so blows our mind that God would leave heaven, take on flesh. And he did it exactly right for his people. I came to do this. That's when my glory is revealed, that God would die in essence for his own standards for sinners. That's glory. That's what he was referring to. Mary turns to the servants. No words are exchanged there. There wasn't a debate, an argument. Jesus, Mary didn't say anything else. She knew, I think, at that moment that I'm gonna leave it up to him, but she then gives a kind of a short little sentence, which is probably a really, really great sermon. Good instruction, but a great sermon we don't have time for. She simply says, do whatever he tells you to do. We could do the rest of the day just doing a sermon on that, right? If I paraphrase, it would be obey without conditions, Jesus alone. That's what she said. Do what he, the exclusive one, tells you to do. That's, that's kind, of the, the kind of the call of the church is to obey Christ. Nevertheless, that's a, like I said, a sermon for another day. So there at this wedding, the text tells us, like all homes in Israel, were vessels, pots, um, stone pottery that were used to hold water for religious ceremonies, uh, ceremony cleansings, all right? And we're told that there were six of them there, and they're huge jars, 20 to 30 gallons, like huge jars. If you do the math, it's 120 to 180 gallons of water jars, Okay. And Jesus tells them, these servants, to fill them up, fill them up to the brim, fill them all the way. 
And then he tells them to draw water and take it to the master of the feast, like the wedding coordinator or whatever, and let them taste it. And, the, and what this master of the feast discovers, not knowing anything at all about a miracle, but simply knowing something unusual has taken place. Nobody serves the good wine at the end. That just doesn't happen. He doesn't know that Jesus took six pots of water and turned them into the best wine humans have ever tasted. All he knows, it's the best wine he's ever tasted, and no one gives it in this order. Gives it last, unlike everyone else. And it's so good, he has to tell, tell somebody, and so he mentions it to the bridegroom. And then John simply ends this narrative by saying, and this is the first of his signs. So the story's wonderful, and I bet if I just said, tell me what you know of this story, you would say, the miracle of Jesus, he turned water into wine, and that's true. That's, that jumps off uh, the page at us. But behind the scenes of this narrative that is kind of going by in 11 verses, there is a piece of redemption and a piece of redemption and a piece of the story of our story all the way through it, signs. And, and what, by the way, we're starting this section called the Book of Signs. So for the next, I don't know, eight, nine chapters, we're going to discover this kind of same things being repeated over and over again of what's behind the narrative, okay? So let me do um, or try to do what I think John wants this story to do. Let's talk about the signs. Let's try to see if we can find a few in this narrative. I'll give you uh, some that came to my mind, and here they are in no particular order. Number one. Having no wine isn't a small problem. It's the biggest problem ever. Because no wine is another way to say no Jesus. And that's the biggest problem ever. So let me ask you, church, why does this story matter to you? Why do you care at all about a wedding in Canaan where Jesus makes wine out of water? I'll tell you why. Because Jesus is saying something to you and to me. Sin is an enormous problem. It isn't a little deal. It doesn't need a, a small adjustment. It's a massive problem that needs a savior. That's what he's saying here. You and I need forgiveness. We need grace. For us to have life to make any sense whatsoever, it needs to make sense with the new wine of Jesus. Who Jesus is for us. I never know who comes on a service on a Sunday, but I always make the assumption that every type of person is well represented. People who, when I say Jesus, man, you feel the warmth in your heart. You go, yes, he's my savior. I confess him. I know him. I know him. And then there are people who know about him, and then there are people who don't. So I'm going to talk to some of you who, who are here who might not know him who know the historical figure but don't know him as Lord and Savior. Well, I'm just going to tell you very plainly because I walked a season of my life without him as Savior. What's life like without Jesus? And you might not have ever even thought that question. I'll tell you what it's like. At a minimum, it's uncertainty. You can try your best and you're still not quite certain. You might even conclude that the best efforts you have haven't produced what you look for, and so there's vain vanity in it, right? Vain attempts. 
You might have gone so far to try every option like Solomon does in the wisdom literature and find out that all you've done is messed up everything, and so now you've got the brokenness of your attempts. No answers, frustration, and probably the most, the, the biggest feeling of being ripped off ever. Never satisfied. It's just never there. When I'm all done doing everything I can, I still got a question, I still have a longing, I still have an angst, I just can't quite get there. Well, you've, you've decided to live your life without the wine of Jesus. No wine is a serious problem. Now, let me just suggest to you that I think this applies even to believers in the room. Because some of us, some of us choose to choose to leave Jesus in a category of theological absolutes. Like he sits over here in just this category of, of standards and principles and laws. Like you know the doctrine, but you don't have the devotion. And so Jesus isn't both both. God and Savior and Lord, like he just sits in a way that you get from hell to heaven and good, but I'm going to go do my life. But you will also feel the suffering and the longing and the disappointment and the brokenness of trying to do your confession without the proximity of Jesus. No one's immune to doing life without the wine of Jesus. No wine in this story is what it's like to not have it. There's no joy. There's no celebration. There's no point. Just the shame of this whole thing. Here's another sign. The new wine of Jesus is the covering for that shame. Could you imagine if Jesus didn't show up here? I mean, you got the, you got the groom who's responsible to pay for all this. You've got all the expectation and weight of a cultural sense of who you are and, and how you do what you do hanging in the balance on this moment. And could you imagine if this wedding just ended with the disgrace of running out? If it ended with the shame of being too poor to do it right? If it ended with the shame of having the reputation of failure? If that's the way it ended? Are you getting my drift? Every one of us are all of that without Jesus. Can't get out from under the shame, the embarrassment, the failure, the inability. Tried, can't pull it off. Everyone knows. That's what life is like without Christ. Embarrassed, full of shame and failure. Having found out the best I can do is not enough and the weight is too heavy to bear. Exposed. But here's what we confess. By faith in Christ alone, he shows up just like he showed up at the wedding. And he deals with the shame and the loss. And he makes a party for a bunch of failures and he makes all things new. So new that no one even knows there was a problem. Like it never happened. No one knew. Servants saw it. <laughs> the party just went on without this understanding. That, in essence, is how we experience the grace of God. You know you, and he knows you, and he covers you. When David talks about his own iniquity and his own sin in Psalm 103, he talks about it in so absurd ways. God, you have removed my problem so far from me. The only way I can describe it is if east and west could never touch. That's what he does for us. 
just like this wedding. He covers the shame. Nobody sees the, the groom the way they would see him without help. Like it never happened. There's another sign in the story I want you to see. The new wine of Jesus is an end of my efforts and attempts to clean myself up. These jars that were in the home, like we're in every home, were meant and put there for endless attempts to make things right. The ceremonial washings to make yourself clean. You wash yourself before you ate. You wash yourself after you ate. You wash yourself when you woke up. You wash yourself before you took Passover. If you happened to scratch your head or cut your nails or cut your hair, you had to wash yourself. If you scratched your underarm, you had to wash yourself because everything was a sign that you're dirty. You're always dirty. And you were washing all the time, all the time trying to fix it. Let me just tell you something, and you already know this. There's not enough water in the world to clean up what's wrong with us. Religion won't do it. Being moral won't do it. Church attendance won't do it. There's not, not enough. They had water for the outside, but they had nothing for the inside. Nothing. And that's what men can do. They can put water in jars, but only Jesus can make wine. Only Jesus can do that. It's interesting to remember really kind of the analogies of, of even water, if you look back in the Old Testament. If you think about water turning into anything, you might think of the moment when Moses was dealing with the Israelites and Egypt, right, trying to get you know, his people in, freed from slavery. Remember the story how water kind of turned up there? God said to Pharaoh, let my people go. There's law. They wouldn't obey God, and what did he do with water? He turned it into blood. And blood was a sign of judgment. That's all you got left. You got problems because you won't. And then here in the New Testament, what a wonderful contrast. Water is not turned to blood. It's not become judgment. It becomes wine. It becomes grace. It becomes provision becomes joy in Christ alone. Do you see the difference? You see the difference of what the Messiah does to our story. He changes everything, every bit of everything. Before we move on, there is something else I, I, I want to ask you or maybe just state to you. And I hope you uh, uh, understand what I mean by this. Everyone still has jars like this. Every one of you. Not like earthen jars. You know, jars. Ways that you and I choose to make ourselves presentable to God that isn't by grace. We all do. And they can be bigger or smaller. You know, that kind of principle people have, fake it till you make it, pretend to be something you're not. That's a jar. You know the, the jar of comparison theology? Like what God expects is that I just outrun you. You know, like you're being chased by a bear in the woods. Just as long as you're not the slow one, you're going to survive. That's not how it works. You don't get to grade on a curve. You don't get to look at your neighbor and go, well, his life is really a problem. Mine's not such a problem, so God's got to be way better with me. And that's not how it works. He's holy, and you're not. And it's over. At that point, it's over. 
You don't get to compare. You don't get to offer God your life as the rest of the world. You're just stuck there, being seen by the holy perfection of God, and you fall short. Some people try the jar of self-righteousness or the jar of denial. It's not me. It's not my problem. It's their problem. I wouldn't do that. I've never done that. So let me just ask you a question. Let it just sink in. You deal with this. What are your jars? What are they? Because they won't satisfy. They won't bring joy. They will never clean you up. Here's another sign. New wine is supposed to be the personality of the bride. You know, wine, joy, wine, celebration, right? The happiness of this wedding moment should not just kind of go over your head. When Jesus shows up and becomes the new wine in the wedding, exponential joy goes through the roof. Do you understand what I'm saying? So here's what I want to put on you. The church needs to represent that new wine. How you doing? I got to just tell you that 2020 stinks. And the church is white knuckling itself through the whole thing. And it should not be. We serve a God who is sovereign over every little thing you see. And he's good. I don't know what he's up to, I don't know why. I couldn't, I couldn't tell you for a minute how that insanity or that insanity or that craziness, how it has a play in God's kingdom, but I know he does. Where is the joy on your face? Where is the peace in your heart? Listen, I, God's going to judge us in the most wonderful father-to-children way possible if we have our hopes hanging on November. Our hopes aren't on November. They're not on a good economy. They're not on anything but Jesus. Come on, say amen to that. That's our confession. Our joy in his salvation and a savior that is good and true. This grace that we receive from him, this lavishness that we are supposed to extend to others, right? It's supposed to be our personality. Here's another sign. This new wine is a picture of truth and grace, perfected in Jesus. Who can turn water into wine? This is not hard. Tell me. Jesus. God can. The one who makes grapes can. He can take water and turning it into whatever he wants. God can. The sovereign one can. The word made flesh can. This story, like all the other stories we're going to encounter, is God come in the flesh. It is truth walking around in Israel. Everywhere he goes, there he goes, the truth. Jesus is the truth. Jesus made it all. He's holy, he's the standard, he's the only way. And why that matters to us is that we're dead in our sins and transgressions. And the promise of God to those who live in their sins and transgressions is death, eternal death and separation. And he is God's only son and only provision of, for sinners and that is the truth. No other truth 
He defines all other truths by his absolute. But what does Jesus do at a wedding? He paints the clearest possible picture of what he offers as a solution to the problem, and that is grace. Lavish grace. 180 gallons of grace. Full to the brim of grace. You get in the picture. He overflows in the wedding with grace. And it's only by faith in Christ you get that. And when you get that, you get all of that. There's no way they could have drunk all that wine. Somebody calculated 2,400 cups of wine. No way. So watch this. Not only did he provide the best of the best for the best day of their life, there was enough left over for wealth. They could sell it. Lavish grace, stupid grace, doesn't make any sense grace. You know you. So when you look at your life and you have the the categories of shame and you know that he covers your shame and then some, and then he says, oh, come over here and put on this royal robe and wear this ring and be my son and inherit the kingdom. Do you get grace? Do you get the buckets and buckets and volumes and volumes of grace? I hope so. Jesus is truth and grace. There is a truth that no one can run from or rewrite or ignore. It's absolute. Jesus is holy. He is God. And we are not holy. But when that truth rips us open and lays us bare and finds us impoverished and destitute, Grace reaches down from heaven and touches everything that's broken. And he superabounds for us there. Not just once, but every single hour of every single day of every single year of your entire existence, buckets and buckets of grace. You never stand on your own two legs. You stand in grace. Which leads me to the last sign I want to point to you. This new wine is a promise of ever-increasing joy. At the wedding, uh, they thought that the groom had saved his best for last, but we know that's not true. He didn't save anything. What happened was Jesus showed up. That's what happened. And Jesus' promise to us is the same experience as the wedding and that he is an ever, always increasing joy. And in essence, he's given us so much, but he is saving the best for last. It's how John, the same apostle, writes about it in Revelation. Listen to this. Listen to how this is going to end. This is amazing. New heaven, new earth. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For those former things, they've passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I'm going to make all things new. Write these things down. They're trustworthy and true. He's saving the best for last. 
That's his promise to us. Let's thank him for it. Father God, every time we encounter your son, our savior, it just, it is a mind-blowing experience. Who Jesus is and how he provides for us in our need, how he doesn't just solve a few problems, but he grants the ultimate reward is just unbelievable to us. So, God, I don't know what people are seeing today, but God, let them see Jesus. Let them see what he provides, what he offers. His joy is overflowing. His grace, as we sang, is more than enough. He is sufficient. So we celebrate him, we praise him, we make much of him today. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.